Welcome to the Your Life Unchained podcast, helping you break the chains keeping you from reaching your true potential in business and life. Here's your host, Rick Scheninger. Fear, overwhelm, procrastination, disorganization, or just general chaos. We all have challenges we have to overcome in order to live life on our terms, to turn our ordinary into extraordinary. Your Life Unchained will deliver simple steps, tips, and strategies you can implement immediately into your daily routine to help you take control of your life and turn your dreams into reality. Welcome to Your Life Unchained. This is Rick Scheninger, your host. And joining me today is the wonderful Colleen Sedano. And she's going to tell us about her journey. Colleen, welcome. Happy to have you here. Hi, thank you so much, Rick, for inviting me. I'm really happy to be here. Super excited to be here talking with you. So Colleen has has gone from one career and completely switched gears into a different career. And she's going to tell us about that and some of the limiting beliefs and the obstacles that she overcame to make that change. Now, if I'm not mistaken, Colleen, you went from one career, it's kind of way over here and completely flipped the switch into something totally different. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely, Rick. My first career was in electrical design engineering. I worked in that industry for about 20 years and I enjoyed my job. And plus, I had become quite successful in it and I was doing well. But there was a part of me that wasn't particularly, I found that I didn't choose that career. I kind of found myself almost in it. I did what I thought would be a good career choice. And so I went along with it and I, and you know, I was doing well. I did though experience while I was working in engineering, quite a lot of imposter syndrome and imposter syndrome can often be triggered by when you feel you are the minority in a situation, when you can't see yourself, it can be one of the triggers. It's not the only trigger, but it can be one of the triggers. It really triggered it for me. And it was quite severe. It wasn't just a little bit of self-doubt. It it really was quite severe. And it was affecting my life, my relationships, my health. And so I did a huge amount of self-discovery. I got some help myself. And I also got very into personal development. Psychology, I was always interested in. But through that experience, I then decided to do a complete career change and study psychotherapy and retrain and become a psychotherapist. But it was really through this obstacle, in a way, that I was experiencing that really opened my eyes to that. As I said, I'd always been interested in psychology, but it also opened my eyes that this is what I could do as well. I could help people. And I really then had a calling to do this as a career and and completely change and help people in this way myself. And so that's what I did. I went back to college and I retrained to be a psychotherapist. Wow. So as you're making that big switch, did you find it difficult? Because obviously you kind of go from an engineering mindset, which is really technical and mathematical into the psychology end of things, which, you know, while there's science behind it, it's not necessarily the same thought process as engineering. So did you find that shift difficult? Yeah, I did. I was actually very surprised because I thought it would actually be quite a smooth transition because it wasn't that it was put onto me. It was what I wanted. I chose it. And so I thought, well, this is going to be easy. This is what I want. And I did want it. Of course I did. 
However, actually what I didn't realize is that I had a lot of my identity wrapped up in engineering. I'd worked in that industry for almost 20 years and part of my identity was defined by me being an engineer. And suddenly when I changed and now as a psychotherapist, it's like even those little conversations you have when you meet people. Oh, well, what do you do? Well, oh, yeah, I'm an engineer. No, I'm not. So I'm not that person anymore. So it actually was quite tricky, that transition, even though it was what I wanted. I almost sort of like, uh, I know this sounds a bit crazy, but it was almost sort of like I had to mourn the death of an old identity while I birthed a new one. And so it was a little bit more difficult than I thought, even though it was what I wanted. Obviously, get used to it and it was fine. But there was that transition period that was a little bit tricky. And absolutely, you know, the thought process is different. I had been in a job, which obviously engineering is quite mathematical. I was using that part of my brain a lot. But the psychotherapy that I'm trained in is solution focused. And so in that way, it's more analytical. It's very much looking for solutions and problem solving. And really, that's what I was doing in engineering. I was problem solving in a different way, but still I was problem solving. And plus, as I say, the School of Psychotherapy, I'm trained in its solution focus, but it also draws on all the human sciences and so not just psychology. It draws a huge amount on neuroscience. And so it was that that really attracted me to this particular school of psychotherapy, because it is actually quite science based. So it really appealed to that side of my mind, for sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But as you were talking through that, I was thinking, let's see, how could you kind of shift that psychology into a neuroengineer or something? So I don't like that. Because it is, it's solution focused. And often you hear the term reverse engineering a solution. So there you go. You were talking about being solution focused and kind of backing into solutions for folks. So do you find yourself reverse engineering the solutions, you know, starting with here's the outcome you want and how do we get to that? How do we engineer the result? Yes, that's exactly it. Where does that person want to be? People might, you know, certainly when I was working as a psychotherapy, because I've since I'm kind of working much more in coaching with people in business and I help them with mindset. But when I was working in, you know, straight up psychotherapy, I'd get people who would come to me and say, you know, well, I just want to be happy. I just, I just want to be happy. Now that is such a huge, what is, what is happiness? You know, what does it mean to you? And so we would really have to unpack that, understand, well, what does happiness look to you? And then as you say, reverse engineer, well, what are the steps that we're going to then take to get you to that point? But first, we have to have a tangible idea of what happiness looks like to you. And then we do that. And so because otherwise, it can seem overwhelming to people. And also, where do they start? So it is very much, yes, starting with the end in mind, but then backtracking and then working out a plan to get there with really actionable steps. That brings up another great point, because a lot to do with psychology and psychotherapy and all of those sciences have a lot to do with subjective results, right? Like you just said, you know, what does happiness mean to you? Well, there's a lot of outcomes that are very subjective and they're only relevant to that particular person. You can only judge that that outcome. So how did you take those subjective or intangible and make them tangible? Yeah, so that is that is it. So it's it's very much defining it for that person, getting very clear of what that means to them, because it is going to mean something. You know, I could never take it that, oh, I know what that person is talking about. 
because you don't just because you you know if I say the word freedom to you if I say the word uh you know happiness or sadness or whatever it does mean something very different to each person different sort of images will be conjured up or even even slightly different feelings so those very big uh, terms, I would then have to really understand and and sit down and get that to be more tangible about what that looks like and what that means to that person. And so I could understand it so that I could help them then with a a roadmap. Because I always say, say to people, you know, especially on this journey of change, they're the ones who have to do the work. You know, it's like I am the navigator for them I can help them but they have to do the driving they have to get there I can sit in the passenger seats and I can direct them and I can show them the path but they have to do the driving and so it's a bit like this for me to be able to get a good idea of the roadmap that I can help them with I then had to really understand of what their destination looks like in the clearest possible way for me to do that. And so that takes a bit of time to understand that but then once you know that then I can help them with their roadmap. I like that. I like that process. Makes a lot of sense. So let's kind of shift gears a little bit and just kind of talk about how you made that transition. Going from a 20-year career history in something that you were obviously very familiar with and very adept in to something that you had an interest in, but you didn't have necessarily the skills built up or the knowledge built up as you were getting started. How did you make that actual transition? Yeah, so it was a little bit tricky. First of all, I didn't necessarily feel for quite some time, I hadn't felt in my job that fulfilled. And so there was other issues going on with me on a personal level about that I needed to do with my own mindset and stuff. But in terms of the actual job itself, there had been quite a few years that had been going by that I actually wasn't feeling fulfilled. I wasn't feeling like it was my purpose. There were aspects of the job that I really loved. And actually, you know, even now I still miss certain aspects of it. I miss the, you know, I was always um, working with brilliant teams. I was always part of a brilliant team. And obviously, as a lone coach or a lone psychotherapist, you don't have that. So that part of the job, I actually I still miss. And so I hadn't been fulfilled, though, in the actual work. As I say, there were those aspects that I loved. And so I had been thinking, what can I do? When I did this personal work on myself and I had such a huge shift in myself, It was almost like I didn't have to choose it. It was almost like I had a calling for it. I desperately wanted to be of service in some ways to others. I think it's also maybe about my age. I was getting to the point where I think that does start to come to the forefront of how can I give back? What can I do? And so I really did feel pulled. And so when I was deciding, you know, I wanted to be of service, it seemed like a no brainer. It seemed like a natural fit, but there were things that, Obviously, you know, in terms of the transition, as I say, identity was one thing, but also we must remember that a job can give you a huge amount. We have emotional needs, fundamental emotional needs that need to be met. And some of those needs, when I transitioned, it took a while for my new career to give me those. So for instance, like we have a need for status. And I don't mean like the being the president of America or the prime minister of the UK, but more that you valued and respected. And when you go to work, even if you're the janitor in a school, you know, you get called in to take part in writing the new health and safety report because you valued and you feel valued. Now, when you leave a job, and you're not building up a new career, you have to build all that stuff back up. All those things that the old career was giving you, suddenly you're just no longer there. And so 
that did take a bit of time. I wasn't necessarily, I think maybe in some ways I'd been a little bit naive. I wasn't quite prepared for how much it would take to build that all up. But, you know, I did. But there is that transition where perhaps those things that that old job were giving you, those emotional needs, for instance, suddenly weren't there. And then you have to start afresh and build it up. So I'm not going to lie, it wasn't the easiest process. But at the same time, I knew when I thought about where I was, and I knew I wasn't happy in my career, did I stay safe and comfortable? But actually, you know, I had another potentially 25 years of work ahead of me, maybe 30 years of work. Was was I going to be what was I going to be like in another 10 years? I knew if I didn't make that jump, that I would be probably pretty miserable by another 10 years time. And so I knew I had to do it. I needed that change. I've, I really felt it. And so it sort of pulled me. So it was quite natural in a way. Wow. That's a big shift. And, you know, I had something similar where, you know, you're, you're in so far and it's either, it's either jump now or stay forever stuck. Right. And rather than, than doing that in order to move forward, you got to take a chance. So I find it interesting because you said one of the things that compelled you into the psychotherapy field was the imposter syndrome that you felt in your previous field. And did you also struggle with that imposter syndrome as you broke into a whole new career? No, I didn't actually. When I struggled with the imposter syndrome in engineering, I did so much work on it, so much self-development in that space that. When I then changed careers, I, I'm not saying, you know, we all experience self-doubt, so, and I still do. You know, that's a natural thing that we all will experience from time to time. The difference is, is that you know, with the imposter syndrome, it was a deeper anxiety that I was feeling. And so it wasn't necessarily based in any rational or logical thought, because sometimes an anxiety is not. And so it was a much deeper issue. So I definitely overcame that before I moved into my new career. I didn't sort of, you know, I was still in engineering for a while after I had overcome imposter syndrome. I, you know, it was probably another, I don't know, maybe a year and a half later before I actually moved. I was still working in engineering where I'd overcome that issue. And then, of course, when I changed careers, yes, there was self-doubt. Yes, there was all of those things which were natural, but it was never to the scale of, I would say, the anxiety I felt with actual full-blown imposter syndrome. I never I never went back to that. I felt, you know, pretty confident in journey that I was taking, in the direction that I was moving. And I knew that some of the feelings that I was feeling were only natural and normal under the circumstances. And what are some steps that people can take when they're feeling that? And what I mean by that Really, because you said that you really worked on the internal reasons. So, you know, you weren't just kind of fixing, it wasn't a Band-Aid, for example. You weren't just fixing the, the symptoms, the imposter syndrome itself, but you really dug deep to work on the reasons behind that imposter syndrome, the anxiety that was causing that. So what are some suggestions or recommendations you can give to people that want to work on their own feelings of whether it's imposter syndrome or the underlying causes? You know, what did you discover, for example, was behind that in a deeper level that maybe people don't think about when they feel that imposter syndrome. Yeah, so I just want to define, you know, there is really a very big difference between self-doubt and imposter syndrome because a lot of people use it interchangeably or they think, they say, oh, you know, I've got that imposter syndrome thing. And really what they're experiencing is just natural self-doubt under the circumstances. So, you know, imposter syndrome really is a, a fear or an anxiety that you are going to be found out that you're not as good as people think you are 
or you've just got to where you are out of luck or being at the right time at the right place. And so it really is not based in any evidence because all the evidence is actually showing you are pretty talented and skilled at what you do. That's why you get massively accomplished people who do experience imposter syndrome. It's not a matter of just going out and the more accomplished you become, the less those feelings become. Because if they do, then you know you probably were experiencing just some self-doubt because often that is the antidote to self-doubt. You know, when you go and accomplish a lot of stuff, you then start to build your confidence. Now, with imposter syndrome, that doesn't happen. And so I realized that that's what I realized, that actually there was something deeper going on. It wasn't anxiety because actually I was pretty accomplished at my my work and everybody around me, I'd been promoted. You know, I definitely was good. So it was not based in any reality. But what I had to look at was very often what drives imposter syndrome is we have a deep or a hidden unconscious belief about ourselves that's driving all the feelings. And also, ultimately, what it's about is we've created a set of rules, and really they're competency rules. So what we believe makes us competent in our jobs, and that was where I had to do the work because I had created these beliefs. I was struggling with things like perfectionism, also not asking for help, and that's part of it. So, for instance, as a perfectionist, I would have a competency rule that if I didn't get it right first time or it wasn't perfect, then potentially I wasn't competent. And then that made me feel that I shouldn't be in the job and that then that got my feelings of imposter syndrome working over time. It's the same as if I felt I needed to ask for help in my head, because that's a warped view of reality in my head that was showing, oh, well, you can't be competent if you have to ask for help. And then these feelings of inadequacy would crop up. Of course, it's not based in reality because everybody has to ask for help. Everybody sometimes doesn't get things right first time. That's natural. But when your rule book is so unattainable, like mine was, then you constantly feel like you're failing. And so that's what I realized. That was the deeper work that I had to do was where did these beliefs come from? Why did I have to get things right all the time? Why was it not okay to ask for help? That was the deeper work that I had to do because that was ultimately driving this fear that I wasn't actually good enough, but no mere mortal would ever been able to achieve those, those things that I'd created. And so that was definitely the deeper work that I had to do. And also, as I say, what was driving it was a, a core, because a lot of with imposter syndrome, it comes down to feelings of inadequacy or not feeling as worthy as the, as the rest. But what really drives it is this hidden inner negative belief that we have. And so it, I really had to find out what that was and get to the, the core of what that belief was and process that and realize that really that belief all the time had been nothing but a lie. It wasn't based in any truth because 99.9% .9 of the time for every imposter, that belief that they hold inside about themselves is never true. It's always a lie. And so that was the deeper work that I needed to do. And I did it and I managed to overcome it. And of course, as I say, I still do feel self-doubt from time to time. That is only natural, but it's not the sort of real anxiety that imposter syndrome can sometimes feel like. That's beautiful. So if you were to take that you know, somebody's feeling anxiety or they're feeling that imposter syndrome or they're feeling inadequate. If you were to break that into, let's say, three steps for them to get started to maybe work on themselves, what would you say or how would you break that down? So I would say the very first step is to have an awareness 
become aware of what is going on because at the time I wasn't aware at all. I mean, I didn't know. I didn't know it was called a name. I had no idea that the feelings I had was had a name. But also, I wasn't aware of some of the behaviors I was doing. So I didn't realize it wasn't. I didn't have a conscious thought of, oh, if you ask for help you will seem like you incompetent. I didn't have a conscious thought. I just didn't ask for help. There was something driving me that I just could never ask for help or that I always needed to get things right. So it was becoming very aware of what those behaviors were. And so that's the very first step is awareness. Also speaking about it because it's about breaking the silence. It's not a taboo thing. You know, there's a common misconception that more women struggle with imposter syndrome than men. And that's not true. All the studies show it's really 50-50. It's just that I think women speak about it more. And so anecdotally, I think, you know, more people think more women struggle with it, but that's not the case. And so break the silence, but also then look at, write down what you think your rules are of what you believe makes you competent. Just listen to that dialogue you're having with yourself. So that's definitely the second step. And then also look at some of the protective mechanisms that we're doing, because a lot of the things that we do, like procrastination or holding back or even working too hard, where you feel you have to work harder than everybody else, because maybe deep down, you don't feel you as good as everybody else. So the third thing is to really look at those behaviors. Are you procrastinating? Are you holding back? Perhaps you a workaholic, you know, may, is it coming from imposter syndrome? Is it coming from somewhere else? Because it can come from, from imposter syndrome that you feel you have to work harder than everyone else because you're not as good as everybody else. And so it's looking at those behaviors, also understanding that the, all of these behaviors, they're not there to harm you in any way. They're there to help you because it feels it's a protective mechanism, even though it's coming out as like not a particularly good thing, like procrastinating, but it's there to protect you in some way. So the third thing is really understanding what those behaviors are doing for you. Ask yourself, how is this helping me? Because ultimately, even though it's misguided, that part of your brain that's creating those behaviors in you, that primitive part of your brain, thinks it's helping you. And so that would be the third part is really understanding what those behaviors are doing so that in order for you to then break it. So really, the entire thing uh, comes down to, you know, awareness, getting aware Awareness, breaking the silence, and then really understanding the behaviors that are serving you in some way, albeit misguided. Yes, yeah, because they, they definitely are misguided and they're never there to harm you, even though they are harming you in a way because holding back is never good. And you know that on a conscious level. But there's this other part that keeps on enforcing the behavior because it thinks you, it's protecting you. And that part of the brain, you know, the unconscious part, it can only see in the here and now what it's protecting you from. It can't, you know, the job of the conscious brain is also to be able to project into the future and go, oh, well, if I carry on this behavior, it's going to harm me. Whereas the unconscious can't do it. All it is interested in is the here and now. Oh, I'm going to save you from this potential pain right now. Right. Well, that's fantastic. Colleen, I really appreciate you being here today. You gave some real golden nuggets and definitely a, a great framework for all of us to use in helping overcome our own imposter syndrome that we all suffer from or experience at some level. Again, I appreciate you sharing both your journey as well as kind of your results with us. Yeah, you're very welcome. I've really enjoyed it. And thank you so much for inviting me on. Thanks so much. And how can people get a hold of you or find you, whether it's on social media or your website? 
Yeah, so I'm on pretty much all social media. So my Instagram is Detox Your Mind. That's my Instagram. It's a really old name. It's not that old <laughs> brand anymore, but I've got a lot of followers. So that's my Instagram. I am on Facebook as Colleen Sedano Coaching. I'm also on Clubhouse under my name as well, Colleen Sedano. And of course, I'm on LinkedIn as well, all under my name, Colleen Sedano. I do, my website is ColleenSedanoCoaching.com. So those are all the ways that you can get hold of me. Perfect. And I'll, of course, have those in the show notes as well. Well, Colleen, thank you. I can't thank you enough for being on here today. Super appreciate it, all of your insights. And we'll see you around the clubhouse. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> so much for listening to the Your Life Unchained podcast. We'd love to help you break the chains that are keeping you from reaching your true potential in business and in life. So don't forget, like, comment and subscribe and we'll see you soon.